0: Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffray, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, or owners of land or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." So this is the portrait of unity that we'll see. And then we're going to be seeing here and reading about a portrait of disunity and deception that's going to be creeping in. And it's kind of the contrast to what we just read. Look at Acts 5 verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Here's a key phrase, you have not lied to man, but to God. And verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, and after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Gives her an opportunity to tell the truth. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who had Heard of these things. And we keep reading in verse 12. In the fear, we see the power of God not only bring judgment, but also bring great miracles and great blessing and healing. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out their sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and all those who were afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word and your truth Even the the gravity of this passage and the challenging nature that it presents to us, God. I pray that you would both challenge our hearts, you would encourage us as well with both your power and your spirit that is alive in us. And God, we pray for the many needs of our church, for those who are sick, for those who are uh, facing challenging circumstances. We pray for them, that you would be with them, that you would heal them, God, that you would give us the energy and strength that we need to accomplish the tasks in front of us. And God, that we would learn to trust you more than ever. And God, we pray for all these things, that you would bless this sermon and this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 4, we're continuing our series of uh, the movement begins in the book of Acts. As we've been watching this study of the early church, we've been watching this spread out from the cross, and as it's been growing and spreading, and it is uh, really in many ways been movement has been flying so far. In a sense you could say it's been exploding. And today we're going to see uh, one of the first uh, major challenges that the church faces. I guess maybe perhaps it was the persecution of Peter and John uh, as they were placed in prison. But this specifically is going to be one of the first major uh, strategies of Satan to stop the movement of the church and the growth of it. And you're going to see it happen in a very unique way here in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I'll admit, when we read the book of Acts, we can often idealize the book of Acts in such a way that I often become a little bit like, man, if only, our, if only I lived 2,000 years ago, right? And, and, and then you look at our, your own church or your own situation and you think of the church today and you're like, you know, we're missing so much of what they had. And in a large part, that can be true. But I'm afraid sometimes even in my own reading of the book of Acts, I can idealize it in such a way that I act as if they never faced any challenges or difficulties or had any problems from within or from without. That they just faced everything and everything was easy for them. And everything we face today is hard and difficult. And so sometimes it can be that way where we look at the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we look at the Bible and we see those situations and we feel ourselves so far removed and we tend to just think it's impossible. We look at this passage here in Acts, and we've been seeing how they faced so many different situations, how God and his spirit was moving, and we recognize that Acts is a very transitional book as it transitions us from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the New Covenant, as we transition from disciples that were with Jesus, who are now serving as his apostles, who are now laying the very concrete foundation of the church with Jesus Christ as that resurrected piece of the chief cornerstone. That now the entire church throughout church history over the next 2,000 years reaching to us today is built upon the foundation that is laid by the prophets, by the apostles, by Jesus Christ himself. So the early church is laying this transitional period here in the book of Acts. There's foundations that are laid. The church is being built. And then we follow in suit. But what we share with them in specific ways is many things that we experience. There are a lot of patterns that we see here in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that we can follow and learn to govern our own churches based on how Acts is done. And we see that there is a clear war going on then and a clear war going on now. A clear war between darkness and light. A clear war between the Spirit and Satan. A clear war between the Church of Jesus Christ. And the methods and the strategies of Satan and the effects of sin upon us today. And so today's message is entitled this very, in a sense, we're we're looking, I I want you to be able to spot the strategies of Satan. You'll notice his name was mentioned in chapter 5, a couple different ways in this sense that, that Satan is seeking to defy and destroy and kill and divide the church of Jesus Christ. And he will go about it in a variety of different ways. I I really want to be able to target three main ways for you to consider uh, that is reflected in this passage. Really, what we see, though, is this portrait, these three portraits, before we get to the three strategies here, is we see three portraits. The first portrait is this spirit-filled unity. Like the very beginning, they had everything in common. There was this unified church. The second is really this satanic-filled division, seeking to come and divide and destroy the very foundations of the church. And then we see a spirit-filled power that is working wonders among the people and the community and transforming lives. So those three things, I would say in many ways, still happen today still we experience this today. And so John Stott, a writer that I found very helpful on this, gave, gave three main strategies that Satan uses and employs in different ways to try to stop the, met, the, the work of the church. And we see the second one in particular being worked out here. We've already seen the first. The first is physical, the strategy of physical persecution. The first main way that that Satan is going to use to try to stop and thwart the effort of the church in whatever century it is, is physical persecution from without. It often happens from outside the church, outside these four walls and these people. That physical violence and pressure upon the body and upon the church is happening. We don't experience it, I would dare say, today in much ways here in America, but globally this is happening all the time. And so there is physical persecution and violence put on the church. That has already happened in some ways with Peter and John. You're about to read about it in a couple of chapters with Stephen. He's going to be stoned to death here in a moment for this, for his, uh, in chapter 7. Um, but we're going to see that physical persecution be ramped up. Number two is the strategy that Satan uses to stop the church and divide the church is moral. Is moral. So not only physical but moral. There's this moral subversion. And this is... From within. It is often from inside the church. It is a very cunning assault with moral corruption or compromise that seeks to ruin Christian fellowship from within the body of believers. Ananias and Sapphira were part of that early church that was filled with unity. And it is from within that Satan sought to fill them with evil and seek to destroy the moral foundation of that body of believers. To seek to divide with corruption and compromise and to subvert the very purpose and the righteousness of that people by dividing it through subversion and moral failure. Uh, The third would be And and I'm not even sure which one is more common. I would say all three are happening. It it just perhaps happens maybe in your own life, which ones you experience more at different times and the church today here in America, what we experience. But this one is, is probably more popular than we recognize. Number three is professional, he says, and I found this very helpful. You'll see this happen in another next chapter, but the professional is in the sense of distraction. Satan will seek to to attack with physical violence and moral uh, subversion and professional distraction. This is an all-around kind of attack where it is probably perhaps the most subtle of the attacks. It it seeks to deflect often first leaders. You could say here later on in chapter 6 where the apostles... Were having, to, were having issues because they were starting to neglect the priorities of prayer and preaching, and they were being occupied and burdened with the busyness of regular life and administration. And, and the goal here was if Satan can cut off the head of the snake, or simply just simply distract the head of the snake, the, the body of the church will be far more greatly exposed. There is a distraction that even in your family, as a father, as the head of your household, that as a mother, you lead that family in such a way that you can become so distracted with things that ultimately do not take priority in the most important things that you desire for your children to learn and know. And you can become professionally distracted with everything, that you're so busy with everything else that your family's spiritual well-being is more exposed than it's ever been before. And that happens in the church. Um, You'll see that happen throughout the book of Acts, these three main things. So I want you to keep those in the back of your mind. You got that? These kinds of things that are going on, and even over the next couple of weeks, we may bring this up every now and then. This moral sorry, this physical persecution, this moral subversion, and this professional distraction. Three main ways, and I think if you read the book uh, Screwtape, Letters by C.S. Lewis, these are three different ways that in that storyline that he uses to expose the way uh, satanic and demonic ways to, to trick us and to get us to falter and fall and to thwart the effort of the gospel to be proclaimed through the church. So, as you look here, verses 32 37 is what I want us to look at first. Is this, uh, they had everything in common. There was a great grace and generosity filling the church at this time. This word common, you see it in verse 32 at the end there. They had everything in common. Perhaps you, when you first met your spouse or a good friend of yours, and you have this friendship that was so close, you might say the phrase, man, we, we just have so much in common. Never ever said that? We just have so much in common. There's so many things we share. They love sports, I love sports. They love this, that, I love that. They, we have so many things in common. And it's something that brings our like interests, the similar things that we enjoy, our hobbies, uh, kind of our backgrounds are similar. And we just share so much together. And it's just so easy to get along with them. And there's so much that we have in common. But what about a group of people like you people? (laughs) Now, some of you are like, I have a lot in common with them. They share my last name, okay? Or I have a lot in common with them. They're in my neighborhood. Or I have a lot in common. We work together at the same job site, whatever. But some of you might look around and say, what do I have in common with the person in the row next to me? you know, someone attends here new or whatever, and you're like, what in common do I share with these people? Or when I get to go on vacation occasionally, and I get to go travel and go to another church, it's a great joy of mine to actually just participate in a fellowship of believers somewhere else, and to go into there, and what do I have in common with these people? I don't know any of these people, right? What do you share in common with every single person who believes in Jesus Christ? It is that very thing. It is your faith, That you share in common the very thing that was the great power among these people. If you look at the next verse, it says that there was a great power among these people. The apostles were giving testimony of what? Testimony of one thing. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. In my ninth grade and eighth grade class, we just talked about this. Eighth and ninth graders, listen if you're here, right? That the idea of the very central, the very essence of the gospel, yes, is so important that Jesus came at Christmas time. It is so important that Jesus died on Good Friday. But if all of those things took place and the resurrection never took place, then our faith is futile and in vain. The very central point of our faith is essentially standing and falling on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so this was the very thing that united them. Sure, there is a lot of commonalities among our church and the other churches in the area that help us to gather together as a fellowship of people. But this idea of a common denominator among us all is that we share the same faith. I, I've been traveling or I've been in places and, and all of a sudden you meet somebody and you start picking up on things that they're saying or whatever and you're like, are you a believer, you know? <laughs> all right, Brad, do you go to church? Or, you know, you, and all of a sudden you had nothing in common a moment ago and now all of a sudden a door has been opened because you, sh- you begin to share the same faith together with that person. This is the one heart, it says here in verse 32 one heart, one soul that they saw everything together in common. This word common is more than just sharing faith. It was also sharing the very physical lives that they have together. We just had Fellowship Sunday. You've shared food together. After the service, you will share conversation with one another. But as you are part of a church, you also end up sharing your lives together. And that includes the resources that many of you have been stewarded with, have been given by God with to steward. You begin to share those things with other people in your community. And this is the idea that we talked about a few weeks ago, is that word fellowship. Now, we are Hope Fellowship Church. In the New Testament, the word fellowship is koinonia, koinonia. We talk about this quite often, but this was all the way back in Acts chapter two, verse 42 and others, where it talks about how they had all things in common, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the uh, fellowship, it says, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This was an early church portrait of what it looked like to be part of a group of believers there, and the word fellowship was something that they shared in common. They had a faith, but they participated together. The word fellowship has this idea of sharing life together but sharing in the sense that they were giving part of themselves to each other to be owned by one another. That, that we belong to each other and we all belong to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That we are, yes, interconnected by the Spirit and we share things in common. And what we see was a very, a very physical outworking of that belief wasn't just this idea that we talked about, that fellowship is important and we need to share things in common, but that they actually put that belief and that doctrine into action. And they acted upon it. Look it. You see this portrait of generosity that's poured out here. It says here that things that belonged to themselves, they viewed them as not their own. There wasn't a needy person among them. It says that, that one said that that no one said of any of the things that belonged to him was his own but that they had everything in common there was this great generosity among them. Now, first of all, just as a disclaimer, this is not supporting socialism or communism or negating the uh, private ownership of land or businesses, okay? You will see that. In fact, I've seen YouTube videos of, of this passage being used to try to abolish the use that Jesus wanted to abolish the use of private property or private ownership, that's not what's going on here. For later, actually, it says that people continued to meet in people's houses, and they had jobs and a variety of such things. It mentions that throughout Acts, even after in this place. So this is not supporting some kind of agenda in that way, that we're all to have the same amount, and that if someone has more than someone else, then we are doing something wrong. The Bible is not saying that we are to distribute the wealth equally among everyone, What this passage is saying, that the chief needs of all the people in the community were met, that no one had any needs. Do you getting that, right? It doesn't mean that everyone had the same amount of wealth or that owned the same amount of property, but it it is saying that everything that they had was not clutched closely and held tightly, but it was given if there was a need. And it was distributed with wisdom. We also see that then being more greatly distributed in chapter 6, when kind of we see the first deacons being established. But, but, but the whole point is that I think I'm just trying to make here is that some of us and some of the people as Americans, right, we are blessed with so many nice things, <laughs> We have a lot of things. I just love how it's fascinating how it mentions the things in verse 32. It's such a general statement. But, but what, are you, what are you doing with those things in your life that God has blessed you with? Are you seeing the nice things that you have? Your job, your property, your land, your businesses, your clothing, uh, your resources, your bank account. Are you seeing these things as something that are yours? I think even Jerry was talking about some of those things in his reading of that earlier, but... I think of my son uh, Judson quite often in relation to these kinds of things. We were driving in the car the other day and my wife has a snack for all the kids in the car and it's a few clementines. You ever do that? You break up the clementines and you distribute them equally, right, among the children. My son Judson does not enjoy the equal distribution of things, right, especially as it relates to food. Okay. He sees food, and this is just a side note, but we've had two girls and now we have a boy. And the way the girls view food and the way the boy views food has been completely different. Okay? But Judson sees his food as his This is mine. And so when my wife so gently told him, no, 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 you need to share your clementines with others, he then decided he didn't want any clementines, right? If I can't have them all, I'm not having any of them, right? And then the other day, he was walking around the house with a bag of pretzels. Not sure how he got the whole bag of pretzels, but his sisters were wanting him to share the pretzels with him. And so he took out one pretzel and gave it to everyone. (laughs) One pretzel for you one pretzel for you, I have the entire bag to myself, right? And they were like, what, what, you know, you gotta, can we have a few more? No, and he runs away, right? It's this, this picture of viewing all the things we have, Just walking around here at church, and you have this giant bag of pretzels, and you will give one little pretzel to the church, one little pretzel to someone who might be in need, if it, as Jerry was reading earlier, if it makes us look good and people see it, then we'll do it, Right? You know, but rather seeing the things that we have been given as into our hands, God has given, and we can, in many ways, clutch them and grasp them and hold on to them in a miserly way, or we can have those things and hold them loosely with an open hand, and I've, I've experienced that from so many of you. So many of you have come into my life and blessed me, and I've seen you do it with people in this community, people who don't even go to this church but are just in the community in need on a regular basis, this church is meeting needs in the community, most of which you never even hear about. It's a beautiful thing, I see it all the time. And so I don't want you to just see me condemning you in this. In fact, I think this is a strength of our church. It is one of the strengths that I see at Hope Fellowship Church is a people who are generous and who give liberally to many people who are in need. And I think this is a very important point for us to be considering today. That do we see ourselves in this portrait of unity, working together, yes, in our faith, but also in the physical assets that we've been blessed with. How do we see this building? How do we see this property? How do we see it being used in the community? How do we see this church and the skills and the talents that so many of you have? How are we using that to bless other people outside of ourselves and in this community that are in desperate need, who are struggling right now to just simply pay their bills? Who are simply just trying to keep the heat on in their house? who are simply just trying to fix their car and, and the expenses in this economy, how everything is more expensive. How can our church help to overcome the growing eco- economic expenses? And how can we help meet the needs of every person in this body and in this church and outside in this community? That makes a difference in people's lives where they see the love of Jesus being poured out upon them in their time of desperate need. But if we are as a church that this is for us and us alone and it's mine and you can't have it, then we're acting ultimately like a giant little toddler, right? You know? And that's how we act with the things that God has given us. Second Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must decide as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's about the heart. Not gonna stand up here and say, you need to give this. No, we're not doing that here. In fact, we never even really talk about that. You're free to give in the back and online, right? You're free to give in whatever way. So many of you give in other different ways. That it's, it's about the heart. <laughs> That's why in Mark 12, Jesus makes such a big deal about the widow who took two tiny little coins, widow mites, and placed them in the offering. And the Pharisees who had been earlier had been giving loads and heaps of money and making sure everybody hears their coins dropping into the bucket, right? And he made such a point that it was her who gave out of, the, out of her lack of abundance, she gave out of a heart of worship, and that was the whole point behind this all. And so I think this is so important because it gets to the heart of giving, it gets to the heart of sacrifice, it gives to, gets to the heart of, of faith, and ultimately it gets to the whole point that there wasn't even a single person among them that was in need. It wasn't the social welfare welfare, depending on the government to meet the needs. It was the church stepping up to meet people's needs. And I pray that that's something that we always see as a, as a desire of this church. And that's in large part of what the deacons do on a regular basis. They, they take into the funds that we have here at the church and they distribute them with wisdom to those who are in need. And I think that's a wonderful Act of worship. And that's what Barnabas did. If you notice here in verse um, uh, 36 and 37, this person, Barnabas, known as the son of encouragement, he sold a field. He sold a piece of real estate. He gave all of the proceeds to the church, distributed it at the disciples' feet, the apostles' feet, and let them bless others in the church with the need. That is the ideal, the portrait of unity. But what do we see happen next? What do we see happen next? There, well, there, a counterattack is being made the weapon that Satan seeks to choose, is moral subversion. He's going to try to drive a wedge in that church and destroy the integrity of those people through lies and deception and hypocritical action. And if he can get failure in, then that can allow the church to crumble and fall in that unity. And so chapter five, we see a, I will be honest with you, a shocking story. It's one of the most shocking ones, and I think it's meant to be that way. It's meant to get your attention. It's meant to, when you read it, have almost a moral revulsion from within you. When I read it, I'm almost like, oh, this is hard, right? (laughs) And talk about having to preach on this, okay? So it's hard to read. But if you look at Ananias and Sapphira, there is now a great fear among the church of what goes on. And what happens is there is a, Ananias who comes and he keeps back for himself and only brought part of the proceeds to the apostles. Let's be clear. There was nothing wrong with that. (laughs) There was nothing wrong with selling something and giving part of the proceeds. The problem is that he deceived everyone in thinking he brought it all. There was actually no compulsion on this. Peter had not preached or said in any place that you all must sell everything you have and give everything to the church right now. And we're going to have a sell everything Sunday, okay? You come, make sure nobody owns any land anymore. We're all going to share everything next Sunday, okay? For some reason, I don't know if anybody would be here, okay? He didn't do that. It was not this public thing that you are required. But yet, what did did get into Ananias' heart? this pride and arrogance and satanic deception that's saying, look at all the the acclaim and honor that Barnabas got. I want that for myself. And then he seeks to steal worship and glory that is supposed to go to God and his church, and he seeks to steal that for himself by keeping part of it and giving the rest and deceiving everyone to say, look how generous I am. It's this hypocritical, self-centered worship that steals glory from God, that I believe why this reaction from the Holy Spirit through Peter is so stark and powerful. Peter must have been informed by the Holy Spirit in this manner because he seems to be filled with a word of knowledge and discernment on this. He seems to know things that didn't seem to be known outside of Ananias and Sapphira. And we notice here in this situation that Satan filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to test the word of God, as it's said uh, later on through Sapphira, and we see here, he says, why have you contrived this wicked deed in, our, in your heart? He did not give out of a heart of cheerfulness and honor and worship to God as an act of worship. God, you take what I have and you bless it. No, he, he sought to get attention and glory and worship for himself, and then he is struck dead He is struck dead, it is shocking, it is immediate. The judgment happens right then and there. Then it says that they go to bury him, Sapphira comes out, and and Peter, in his wisdom, he gives her a chance to tell the truth. He, He does question Ananias in many ways, but here specifically, he allows Sapphira to answer. And he says, Peter said to her, tell me whether you have sold the land for so much. I'm giving you an opportunity to come clean before anyone, and she doubled down on it. She doubled down on it, and he did. And she he he said, well, "You have agreed together with your husband to test the Lord God, to test to see if He's really aware and as powerful as He says, or if I can slip this one under, you know, and get a little of the attention for myself and corrupt the church from within through deception and lies." We see other situations in the Bible that do bring this kind of stark holiness of God to bear. Uh, Another situation in the Bible that you might be thinking of is Uzzah in the Old Testament. Uzzah is in the ark, he's struck dead when he attempts to try to hold the ark of the covenant up from falling off the cart. David and the Levites had already failed because they were supposed to carry the ark of the covenant and, and treat it with honor and worship instead of drag it along behind on an ox cart. So that was the first failure of leadership and it caused Uzzah, who was just trying to do the right thing, to fall and fail under the, under the judgment of God. We see Nadab and Abihu, a lesser known story in Le- Leviticus 10. They offer strange fire and improper wi- um, worship before the people of God in Leviticus 10. And it is a public way where they then are consumed with the fire that they improperly worship God with, and it's one of those stories you're just blown away with. Uh, the, the one the other one with like Hophni and Phineas and the son of the sons of Eli, who are judged through their wickedness, and it's all operating around the way that they're worshiping God in an improper way, and through adultery and a variety of things. But the key parallel account, before we get to the final point here, the key parallel account I think is found in the book of Joshua. It's the book of Joshua chapter 7 where we get a man named Achan. Are you familiar with this story? And if you haven't grown up in the church and you don't know this story, that's okay. The story is simple. The people of God are entering the promised land and God is working mighty wonders and deeds. Walls of Jericho have fallen, and when they fell, God said, do not touch or take any of the things in this place. You leave it for destruction. Nobody steals, steals. nobody takes any of the goods for themselves. You leave it, and you devote it wholly to destruction, except to Achan. He saw, and he lusted, and he took. And in Joshua 7, it's very specific because he confesses later on, As he confesses what he has done, he says he took, let me find it here really quickly. Joshua 7, after God has revealed, well, sorry, here, so after that, he takes it and he hides these things underneath his tent. They then go into battle and they are defeated greatly against the people of Ai. I believe it's 36 Israelites die in a battle and Joshua is left wondering as to what has gone wrong. And God says there is sin in the camp. There is rebellion, wickedness, and deception among you and God purges it out, and after Joshua whittles down every tribe, down to the final tribe, Achan doesn't come forward until finally, at the very end, there's nobody else left. Everyone else has sat down in a sense. And Achan comes and he says, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them for myself. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. God then pours judgment upon Achan and his family for this wicked sin that has already been poured out and your sin will find you out that story as it says Leviticus and a variety of others this is one of those situations that comes to bear and great fear is poured out then as the people of God are making a transitionary moment as God is working mightily he cares about the holiness of the deeds of the people he cares about their righteous acts and their heart behind it all and he would not tolerate this great deception and rebellion In the same manner we see in the book of Acts, the people of God in a similar way as the people of this new nation that is being formed, the people of God, the church, and as it is pioneering in this beginning phase, as they are entering this new land and new way of operating as the church under the Holy Spirit, God would not tolerate this kind of evil that was about to infiltrate and was infiltrating the camp. And he sets a precedent and he sets up an example for us all, even as I said thousands of years later, to look back and to consider our very own heart of worship and our very own heart of generosity or lack thereof, our very own clutching of the things that we think that are ours, or our willingness to to live a life with an open hand to seek, yes, to steward the things that God has given us, to maximize whatever he has blessed us with as Jesus would teach about the talents and the resources that he gives to his servants, yet also not holding it or clutching it like a miser, but be willing to give liberally to all who are in need. So this is a strong warning. It should be felt. And it goes for our church and every church today and goes for leadership as well that seek to use the church as a means for profit for themselves, these things are to be gravely and seriously taken to bear. They're not to be trifled with, and I think that's also a reminder before we come to this final point here of numerous signs and wonders and great power. We, are notice, we notice the great power of God to bring blessing and healing and miracles, but also to bring judgment and wrath. And we see a holy God And that holy God is not to be trifled with. He is not something in which we approach him in worship as this is a joke. (laughs) We do not approach him in such a way that we see God as casual in this manner. But I think it's important for us at times to come to God and recognize his greatness and his holiness. Yet in our new covenant faith to recognize the flip side of that is that he has sent Jesus to live as you and me because of his great love, to take on our flesh and to die on the cross for our sins so that we could actually approach a God who dwells in unapproachable light. How is it that that is possible? That you can have a relationship with that almighty and holy God. But what he sees is our heart in it all, our humility. As we read at the beginning of the service In the call to worship, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time he will exalt you. That is the heart of worship that we ought to be coming into because then we see the response. We see the response that God then pours out judgment upon sin and then he pours out his power and wonder of healing and goodness and love and mercy and he pours that out liberally. Look at verses 12 through 16. Numerous signs and wonders with great power. By the hands of the apostles, it says. These were regularly done among the people. There was a consistent verification that the message of the gospel is here. Jesus is risen. He can restore your spiritual life just like he can restore your physical sickness in this way. Look at these examples. Look at the way that God is working. And to see and believe And there's this consistent power. And just prior to this, you could say we saw the the power of the Spirit through Peter, his shadow, you could say, falling on Ananias and Sapphira as they stood and fell before him. And now we see an example of the high esteem in which the Holy Spirit and the power of God was held among the people. There was still great fear. And it is as if the shadow of Peter is literally just falling upon people and people are being healed. Now, we do read it and we see that actually it never says the shadow of Peter healed anyone. But it says specifically that the power of God was so pervasive and so people were so aware of the greatness of God in this moment that they, they thought that even if a shadow from Peter was willing to fall upon my sickness, I would be healed. There was just this sense of an awareness of God's power among the early church. And I so desperately hope for that, as in the same manner that we don't come casually into worship and sing to him in praises. We did come so casually before him or see ourselves distracted with everything else around us, but that we come before him and see him as a holy God, that it deserves our worship. We sang earlier that there is nobody like you, God. No one is like you. All hail King Jesus, we sang. And we, we sing these things in such a way that we recognize the holiness of God, yet we also come before him knowing that there is such a pervasive influence of the spirit among these people that I see lives being transformed and people changed each and every week. I see us growing in likeness of that. And it's this beautiful humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God and watching him work among us to bring about great wonders where our minds are are just drawn. And we are, yes, in great fear, but that fear is changed into awe. And that awe works itself out in worship. And then you come and you want to sing and you want to praise him and you want to pray and have a relationship with him. And you want to see him work and answer those prayers. Because remember, We began a few weeks ago with a message, or just really, I guess last week, on the believers gathering together and praying. They prayed for boldness to continue to preach the gospel despite persecution. And they prayed that God would continue to stretch out his hand and work wonders among them. Now, we see that prayer being answered. We see these things continually going on, the preaching and the teaching. Yet despite the division and the deception that was attempted, God put a stop to it and his power of healing, of his spirit is restoring. And it's this answer to prayer that we see being worked out. And it's the beauty that I see among the church as these kinds of things, these portraits of unity, a portrait of deception, a portrait of great power. These things are going to be going on even among our churches as we see them moving and in and out of the things. And we must have awareness to spot the strategies of Satan that are gonna come against the church, to seek his Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and discernment to be able to stand in the truth, and to see his power change lives before us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word as it has spoken to my heart today. I pray, God, it it has spoken to these people's heart. I pray, God, that we were pushed a little bit today, that your word and your truth would push us to action and to move. And Father, we thank you that you are good to us (laughs) As we see the unity of these people, God, we desperately desire that unity among Hope Fellowship Church. Give us that spirit-filled unity. Lord, help us to love one another in such a way that others cannot help but notice the love that you have poured out on us that we liberally give to others. Help us to be generous with the things you've given us. Help us to honor you and worship you and the things that we have and the lives that we live and the faith, God, that we give to you today. We trust you, Lord pray for anybody in here that doesn't know that trust and have that faith, or today would be the day of salvation. They would call upon you, Lord, and they would be saved. We praise you, God, for your church, in the early church and your church today. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name.